Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. A few years ago, I read this book. It was called When Breath Becomes Air by Dr. Paul Kalanithi. Once I started, I couldn't put it down, and I've since shared this book amongst family and friends. When Breath Becomes Air explores how to live in the face of death. Today, I have the opportunity to talk with Dr. Paul Kalanithi's widow, Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, a physician, a writer, a mother, and host of the podcast Gravity. She's become something of a North Star for people going through loss. Please welcome Katie's mom, Dr. Lucy Kalanithi. Well, doctor, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Um, First and foremost, how is Katie? Um, I know she's six years old and this has to be such a a fun, a fun time for you. Yeah. um, Well, we're recording this just before Halloween and today's the Halloween parade. She's dressing up as a squid. She like identifies with the villain and the squids of the world. (laughs) So, (laughs) but I'm excited. So I love it. So second grade, what what is her passion? Is she into sports? Is she a dot? Like, is she going down the medical path? Like, what? you know, it's so I, she's a big reader. She um, is kind of introverted, but also like a power player. I, she's hard for me to predict. She wants to be a vet uh, and a baker. So whatever that is. We're really different from each other. So she's going to surprise me. I absolutely love it. I am just blown away by When Breath Becomes Air. Um, it's a book that I was fortunate enough to, to read four years ago. And I just think I've given it to almost all of my family and my friends just because I think it is um, just so well-written, so passionate, so authentic, so, I mean, just... You laugh at one moment and you're crying the next. What was that process like going through with publishing? Yeah, um, the book came out after Paul died. So as you know, he was a doctor and then had this dream of being a writer and was a really good writer. And then when he got a terminal illness, he was 36 and he ultimately couldn't be a doctor anymore and started writing. I wrote an epilogue to it after he died. And then the publisher said, are you willing to go on the book tour? And I was like, what are you talking about? But I kind of was like, I'll do anything for Paul. The experience of taking his words out in the world, like you said, was actually amazing. Because I feel like so often if something hard happens to you um, or somebody dies, people are so nervous to ask you about it or don't know what to say. And this was sort of the opposite. It was like literal strangers were asking me about Paul and I really wanted to talk about Paul and have people say his name and like just I, it made me feel really connected instead of isolated um, to be out in the world talking about him and his work. And then also I just feel like, you know, it's so shocking when somebody dies. Like I knew that he was going to die, 
but it's still so like existentially bananas. Like they were here and then they just disappeared. He disappeared. And I feel like getting to keep doing that project like for him and kind of in a way with him um, was also just really helpful because like your relationship with somebody continues after they die. Like you're still loving them. You're still proud of them. Like you still think about them. And so working on the book stuff was kind of a way to like slowly be disconnecting from Paul while also like carrying a thing of his forward that I was thinking about all the time. And I just felt bulletproof. Like I think normally I'd be like, oh no, I have to go on TV. Like, I mean, most people are not used to that. And instead I, but I was just like, I felt kind of invincible because I was like, I have nothing to lose. Like, great, I'll go on TV. And also like, I'm the expert in my own experience, right? And Paul, it's like, nobody's trying to stump me. Um, So a bunch of things kind of conspired to make it feel bizarrely nice. There was something that you said in that blog that it, it talked about how there were, there were things that he discussed within the book that were difficult. Like you went through difficulties within your marriage you know, we, we often find vulnerability to be extremely hard, but once you go through it, you realize that that's absolutely what you need. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, we were going through like a rough patch when Paul was diagnosed and then, um, it changed a lot of things about our relationship and brought up really great things in our relationship. But at first I, like, I would sort of read the manuscript as Paul was writing it like day by day or week by week and kind of talk about it which was really helpful way to process illness too. But when he wrote that stuff about our marriage, I was like, Oh Lord, like you're putting this in here. Like I hadn't expected it. And then after he died, the editor said, do you want to take anything out? And I was like, no way. Like that's, it just felt like I wasn't going to touch what Paul wrote. So I just wasn't, but I wasn't sure what that would be like. And there's like, um, you know, he talks about the decision to have our kid or doing IVF, like just a whole bunch of stuff. And it turns out like those are the things that people come up to me and talk about. And now I know like so much stuff about other people's marriages because I think you're exactly right. When you share something, there's almost nothing that you could go through, like no matter how embarrassed you are or ashamed you are or how strange you think it is or whatever. It's like if you're willing to share something, people will connect to it. Paul continued to work throughout his diagnosis and after what were those conversations like for him to continue doing what he's worked so hard uh, to become? Yeah. So he lived for a little under two years after the diagnosis and he went back to work as a neurosurgeon for about a year until he couldn't. And I think some of that was just, that was who he was and he had to do it to have any kind of grounding. Um, It made me realize how much of our identities are tied up in this conception of our future selves. So to have your life upended in a way, you sort of lose your current self, right? Because you've lost your future self. And so I think he was like scrambling to build an identity and meaning amidst like this terrible diagnosis. It's funny because when he was, when he had like 40 years as a neurosurgeon and was working so intensely. And I sort of didn't see that slowing down anytime soon. That was part of what our marriage difficulty was about was like, is this ever going to get better? Or are you going to work this hard forever? Because I, this is hard. Um, but then when he had like two years left instead of 40 and wanted to work 
it was different. Like the way I saw it was really different. Like if you have so little that you can control and so little that you can have, I want to help you have what you can. And then there was this really romantic part too. Cause I remember saying like, how can I help you? Like, do you want to travel around the world with your brothers or whatever? It's like, is there something else you want to do? Like, do you want to like sleep with someone else? I remember just feeling this like huge urge of like, what do you, what do you want in this time? And he was like, I just want to be with you. And so both of those things were true at the same time. I always ended up thinking, at least in reflection, there's this neurologist, philosopher, Viktor Frankl. I've learned a lot from his books. And he quotes Nietzsche in one of his books, I think, who said, he who has a why to live can bear almost any how. It's like, if you feel a purpose, you can have a lot crumbling around you and still feel like you have your feet on the ground, sort of like Maslow's hierarchy turned upside down. You know, it's like you can be missing like a lot. And as long as you feel like you're compelled by something meaningful, um, you can live. So I felt like I felt like he needed it. And then it felt kind of like a team project to help him get it. And that that why and that purpose continued into the desire to be parents. I mean, we had always planned to have children and probably around the time that Paul was finishing residency, which was like, you know, he got diagnosed just before that. And you have to make this logistical decision before you start chemo about whether you're going to do fertility preservation, like whether you're going to go to a sperm bank, et cetera. And, and we decided to do it. No one even mentioned it actually. Like no doctor was like, do you guys want to preserve sperm? I think they were just like, well, here's a dying person. (laughs) And, but we, decided to do it. And Paul really wanted to have a child. Like he, we talked about it almost immediately and I was less sure. Um, I think because I wasn't sure what it would mean for him. I was really worried about how it could be so challenging for him, you know, in like logistics and spending that time. And then knowing that he was really sick during that time and was going to probably not see her grow up. And I guess two big things happened in terms of those conversations. One was I asked him directly, and this was so powerful for me too. And I said, I'm really worried about what this is going to mean for the time that you have. And don't you think that having to say goodbye to a child will be so painful and make dying so much more painful? And he said, wouldn't it be great if it did make it more painful? And that was really something I think about all the time ever since. Um, and that sort of sealed the deal for me when he said that. And then I also kind of had to figure out for myself, like, this isn't what I expected for myself. And I'm going to be a solo parent going forward with a lot of uncertainty. And what will it mean? Like pregnancy is hard on your body and brings its own uncertainties like parenting does period, right? Like constant uncertainty, about the future and about how to do it. And I was like, can I do that on my own? And can I bear that amidst this whole other thing? And I actually read the book Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon. And it's about parenting and 
all the different ways that parenting can surprise people, in particular when their child's identity is very different from their own. And he basically sort of writes about how so many of these parents would give anything to take away the suffering of their child, but they themselves feel so much meaning and personal growth around helping a child through or like learning to love somebody in a way they didn't know they could that very few of them say like I would trade this back um that's what the parents say and that actually was really formative for me too is like there is no preparation for parenting nobody's having a kid because they think it's going to make their life easier so like doing that amidst a terminal illness is just like adding a layer but it's also kind of the deal We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome to our Capital One Cafe break. Each week, we'll chat with a Capital One parent about their relationship with family and finances. Today, we're talking with Heather Winkle, head of design at Capital One. I would love to hear a little bit about your daughter, Gia. She's four years old. And um, what has that been like just balancing work and, and being a mom to Gia? Well, I should say it started off uh, fast and furious because we adopted her. We had been in the process for a couple of years and it was a last minute, can you be here by tonight to meet a two day old baby girl? And we, my husband and I pretty much dropped everything and uh, flew to another city and uh, we're instant parents. We never knew exactly what was going to happen at any moment. And we learned right away, we were just going to have to improvise and do our best in every moment. And that in a nutshell (laughs) is parenthood. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they don't give you a blueprint when you become a parent. You know, honestly, it's just like, almost like good luck. (laughs) And and you understand every baby's baby is different, but if there's some advice that you could give to working moms, um, working parents, working dads out there, um, that maybe you had to learn, you know, along the way that you wish you would have known at the beginning. Oh my goodness. I think right away, I've always tried to be so good at what I do and get things right. And I think so many people aspire to that. And I had to acknowledge and accept very quickly that I was going to get a lot of things wrong and that I was going to have to ask for a lot of help. And especially being a working mom, having a really busy job, trying to cultivate hobbies and friendships and relationship, um, I had to find a way to really identify what matters most. So for example, creating a healthy meal for my family. Like, did I have to do the meal planning and grocery shopping, or could I order a meal service and then put the energy into having the time and space to make it with my daughter and spend time as a family at dinner. Um, things like that, where, where can I get help so that I can focus on the things that are really going to enrich us and build that relationship. And I think the biggest balance that, you know, a lot of moms, I think realize how important it is to talk about after the fact is the balance of you, the balance of you time, because, you know, we, we call you, working moms and that is what you are but you still need time for yourself so how have you navigated that in these last four years of finding out that finding that good balance because i know 
even throughout the pandemic, Layla is better and our relationship is better when I'm able to have time for myself as well. Oh my goodness. I resonate with that so much. <laughs> I recently talked with a parent coach. That was another of my accept help uh, situations. I love it. <laughs> um, and she asked me a similar question. And I said, well, you know, I've really committed to exercising regularly. And she said, you know, a lot of people have that as the answer. She's like, but in my experience, that gets you to the baseline. That keeps you just barely sane. She's like, Heather, what are you doing to refill your bucket? What are you doing to, to replenish your soul? And um, for me, that I do stained glass as a hobby. And it's really tactile. That's awesome. <laughs> It's, um, it's colorful. It involves blood sometimes, <laughs> but it's a space where because of the sharp edges, my daughter's not allowed. And so it is really mine. And even if I only go up there for half an hour on a given day, I've learned to just even be in the space and let myself imagine and give myself the, the space and time to just dream, just to be. <laughs> even if I'm not doing the activity. That's so important. And I think in terms of carving out your own space and how you do things and what you want to do for you, yourself personally is the hardest thing, you know, in terms of mom guilt. I have one last question for you. And this is one of those moments where I think my daughter was probably around eight or nine where I had this moment where I had a, I am my mother moment. <laughs> <laughs> Have you had that? I know your daughter is only four, but have you had moments where because you're parenting your daughter, Gia, you have become a better daughter or a better partner or a better friend as a result of being the mother of your child? It's been really interesting to be mothering my daughter as an older mother and knowing my own mother in those years of her life and still having a relationship with her as she's going into her golden years, I, I'm able to discover what matters in a moment and ignore some of the stuff that just, you know, at the end of the day, that's not what I'm going to think about whether, when I'm you know, thinking back on my life and did I, did I have those moments? What am I grateful for? It really just brings it into focus, how fleeting things can be and how important it is to um, get to know each other and really be present in the times that you have. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> We're all a blend of multiple roles, constantly juggling careers with family, side hustles, and community obligations. We're often so busy just reacting that important things like planning our finances tend to fall by the wayside. That's exactly why Capital One opened cafes all around the country. Capital One cafes are more than just a coffee shop or a bank. They're built to be centers of well-being for the community. They provide space for you to take a moment for yourself. Capital One believes financial well-being is made possible by everyday well-being. And that's why I've been so proud to partner with them to bring the cafe to you through their online experience. They have helpful videos, tips, and interviews with other amazing people who can help us learn how to find balance in our lives. It's free and available to everyone. 
whether or not you're a customer. So make sure to come and visit CapitalOneCafeEvents.com. Hey, welcome back to Moments with Candace Parker. You, you speak about in a number of interviews, you know, you were trying to do two things. You were trying to figure out how to live without Paul, but you were all also trying to figure out how to live with him. That's, that's so important, those words, because I think there's so many times people are going through grief and they're trying to figure out how to navigate the world without them, but you still want to bring them along. You still want them to be a part of your everydayness. How do you find that balance and how do you continue to find that balance? Yeah. So I just follow my instinct on that. Um, well, I guess I'll just say like, Paul feels like he's still a present part of my life. And we've like, we've moved to a different house and I fell in love again and then fell out of love again. And, you know, Katie's not a baby anymore, but I probably think about Paul every day still. And I have the, if I think about him, I have the exact same feeling of loving him that I had before. So I feel much less sad than I did before, but the love is exactly the same. And so there's that. And then Katie and I also talk about him a fair amount. So she really likes hot, hot, hot showers. And I don't. And Paul really liked hot, hot, hot showers. And so she'll be like, I'm going to go take a hot power shower, hour power shower, just like daddy. So she like, she does a lot of stuff like that. Um, she, I made her a little book about him that has pictures of him. It's kind of like a little storybook. And then she shows up in the middle, which is like an exciting twist. And um, so I think some of it is just like, continuing to talk about him in the course of everyday life and having pictures of him. Um, and then I also, as I'm holding on to him, like don't want to, what's the word like canonify or like reify him. It's like, you know, he's got this really well-known book, but when he was alive, he wasn't a famous writer and he wasn't, he like says a lot of beautiful things in the book, but he's also like, wasn't a perfect person. He was like a regular person. And, and so I want to make sure that she knows that too. And then she'll have his writing to reflect on herself, you know, which I think will be really important to her maybe as a teenager or when she's older. That's so beautiful. And I think it's so important for us to not remember just perfection. And there's beauty in that, you know, it's beauty. There's beauty in being human as a, as a, as a new mom, new moms go through so much just in balancing and things like that again how are you able to continue to raise this little baby she was eight months old when he died so i was going through a lot of grief but i think the actual parenting struggles are like not i'm imagining not that different from any parents in any situation um it does feel like a constant exercise in like flexibility and noticing, you know, I'll be like, Oh, this is who this person is. Like what's next in my job for like trying to help her figure out how to be a person, you know? And it's like, I learn a lot from her too. I was talking about how Katie's so different from me. And one of the big ways is circumstance too. Like she's an only child and I have a twin sister. And so I don't know what that's like. Or like I grew up with two parents, they were divorced, but I grew up with two parents and she has one and she's dealing with like this kind of hole in her life. And I don't know what that's like. And so like in some ways I'm trying to figure out how to lead her, but I'm also trying to figure out how to like watch her and follow her. And learn from her. Yeah. 
because I think as parents, you know, that's the biggest epiphany I had. My daughter was three years old and she taught me so many lessons, Mm -hmm. like just in terms of even what I was doing, you know, like being on the phone or having the remote or totally the way I hold my head in the car. Like, oh God, if you want to see, yeah, if you want to see yourself, you look at your child. Yeah. Um, and like you said, human, the good and the bad. Right. Totally. (laughs) Have you had some of those moments with Katie that you've noticed yourself and her or even Paul? Yeah. I mean, Paul, certainly just in like a lot of physical ways or just in terms of habits, like we play this game called either or basically, but it'll be like rapid fire. It's like lightning round. I'll be like chocolate or Skittles. And she'll be like Skittles. And I'm like mountains or ocean. And she'll say ocean. Or I'll say like staying up late or getting up early. And she'll say staying up late. And I'll be like, you realize she says the exact opposite thing of me every time. And Paul was also the exact opposite of me. And like, I don't know how much stock to put in Myers-Briggs, but like I'm ESFJ and Paul was INTP, which is like literally the opposite on every axis. And so I think it is like you learn to, you learn to live with someone who like arrived in your home and like you don't own them. And you are, you're figuring out how to help them be a person, but it's both, right? Like you want to hear a crazy thing that Paul, that Katie said, Katie sometimes says things I'm sure all children do that like reframe the way we think. Um, and one time she found this little, she just said this really profound thing that also changed the way I think she found this little bell that it's like a little Indian engraved bell with a red cord on it that we had given to people who came to our wedding. It was part of this like little gift bag thing that Paul's parents made with us. And she was like, what is this bell? And I was like, this is a bell from my wedding with daddy. And she's like, was I at that wedding? And I was like, no, you weren't there. You weren't even born yet. And she said, was I in your tummy? And I said, no, you weren't even in my tummy yet. And she said something like, oh, that's because that's when I was dead. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) like, kind of. You know, I think in all of this, and I've experienced just with reading your book and just with talking to you, that you've done this, you know, obviously for your late husband and for yourself, but you've also helped a number of other people just throughout their experiences. And I was, you know, reading a number of your interviews and a lot of the questions that come up is like, why me? You know, when you're going through experiences, why me? And you basically talk about the interconnection in life and in death and how, you know, this process has taught you even through the history of time, you look back at memoirs, you look back at, you know, different things in history and how people speak of death. And there's like an interconnectedness in in that just going out on tour what were some of the things and some of the topics that people kind of talk to you about? Just, you know, even, even now with parenting. I mean, the overwhelming one is that most people are just like, I wish we talked about hard things more. And I think that's changing somewhat during the pandemic because everyone's been like raw or angry and, or needing to connect. And so I actually think, we are talking about hard things more than we were before, I think. 
or just the idea that I hear from people like that suffering is a feature, not a bug. Like it is not some side thing in life that hopefully you don't have to do. It's like really part of it. I think like the idea that we can't avoid suffering and that there's some potentially something to make of suffering. I don't know. I think, I think trying to figure out how to make sense of suffering has been a big thing that I end up talking with a lot of people about. And I guess I have sort of two things to say about it. It's like, do I think there's a point to suffering? No, not necessarily. But if there is, I think it's that it connects us to everybody else in the world. And then I also feel like, you know, Viktor Frankl talks about how work, work is a place we find meaning. Love is a place we find meaning. And then he talks about how the third big one is how we make sense of suffering that we can't avoid is a big place that a lot of people find actual meaning. And at the same time, I think that's only up to you what you find, how you find meaning, when you find meaning. It can take years. It's not on anybody else to tell you what the meaning is in suffering. It only belongs to you. I end up chatting about that as well. Man, I could talk with you for, for hours just in... And, and the meaningfulness of life and just you sharing and you connecting people and you helping. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's really been an honor. That's it for this episode of Moments with Candace Parker. If you've got a question, a story, or a moment you'd like to share, please leave a voicemail at 732 889 3358. If you'd like to learn more about the show, you can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media or on Instagram at WMN.media. You can also follow me, Candace, at Candace Parker on Instagram. Moments with Candace Parker is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Maddie Foley and Brittany Martinez with help from Alessandra Tejeda. Our executive producers are Robin Roberts and Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks to our exclusive season sponsor, Capital One. See you later. Hi, listeners. I'm Jenny Kaplan, the co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network. Thank you so much for listening. I host another WMN podcast called Womanica. It's a five-minute daily podcast about women from history you may not know about but definitely should. We've been publishing episodes for over two years, and we just unveiled a really exciting new look and feel. This month, we're telling the stories of indigenous women from around the globe. Head on over to Womanica and take a listen wherever you get your podcasts.